DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co-founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon, with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Doran, thank you once again for joining me. Well, Chris, it's so delightful to be with you. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been a very impactful series. I'm hearing from so many on Discerning Hearts about how the conversations that we've been having based on your book, To Die Well, A Catholic Neurosurgeon's Guide to the End of Life, has really provoked a lot of not only personal reflection, but a lot of conversation within families. And I've heard from many that it has been a source of healing for them to have revisited other events in their life that helped them to come to a certain type of peace. So on behalf of all those listeners, thank you. We're very grateful for your your care for us at this time. Well, well, thank you, Chris. I think that I've had a number of people express similar things that, you know, when we go through events in our life, come out of the blue and unexpected, and, and you just put your head down, get through it, and then you come out the other side and you look back and say, what happened? And I've had a number of people say to me, I just did the best I could at the time, and I didn't really have much to help me. And then kind of going back and reflecting and reading about this, it's, it has brought me some consolation and and peace because I was I was second guessing myself. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? You know, and I think that's human nature to do that. And so I think that's been really edifying for me to hear people, as you as you said, who who found some some peace and consolation to help them uh, maybe put some of those uh, doubts uh, to rest. I have to say that this particular conversation we're going to have, based on your chapter eight of the book, COVID and dying alone. I think was one of the most compelling, dare I say provocative, but important chapters that I read. It it wasn't just a remembrance of an event, but I really think on many levels it's a call to action to prepare for the future. The shared COVID experience that the world was placed under in the spring of 2020 I I can't think of a similar situation, at least for our generation and our children, and that we all shared together. It was it was such a shocking and immediate experience, and it literally shut down the world, didn't it? It did, and there might be this temptation to want to put the pandemic behind us and say, "Okay, we got through that. You know, let's move on." Well, that's just not possible. I mean, the impact of those months and years will be felt for generations. You know, I was just seeing an article about how 
education suffered and how kids' math scores are just barely bouncing back. And then you see how just things have changed in the in the work community where people work remotely and how medicine has changed. So the you know, so many things changed as a result of this. So we just don't want to put it behind us and forget about it. I think it is important to reflect upon that time because all of us, all of us have our own experience to that. And everyone was touched in some way, in many ways. And so I think it's important. That's that's who we are now. That's part of our reality of our lives right now is those those months and years where so many things happened around us and so many things happened to us, happened to the church and you know, so no, it's it's good. It's good to go to keep that uh, in the foremost of our minds and not just try to put it behind us. I think it was Cicero that said that those who don't know their history are destined to remain children forever. But that's true. I mean, we're not slaves to our history, but if we don't learn from it, we're just bound to repeat it. Absolutely. And in this particular case, it it was this event that happened. I don't know about you, but in February of 2020, I know the McGregors, we had all kinds of plans for the year. And we heard distant rumblings of experiences in other parts of the world. I had dear friends in Italy that were beginning to experience the effects of the COVID virus. And it seemed so horrible, but then it still didn't seem real enough to come and affect our country in the United States. But when it did, it happened so quickly and decisions had to be made so fast because there was this looming danger of an unknown plague, can we call it, that could cause death. And a fear just swept over, I would say, everyone. You're right, Chris. I reflect back on kind of the immediacy. There was like one week in the United States where everything changed overnight. Remember, I, was, I think it was a Creighton University basketball game. They called the game off at halftime. They stopped the game. And, and there was just this urgency, this immediacy to do something. I think that um, there was probably some uh, wishful thinking, some naivete that we thought, well, you know, through technology, through policies, through whatever, we can stay insulated and we can keep this out of our country, which of course we know that's not the case. The the virus spread every part of the world despite all our efforts to the contrary. So, but it happened so fast. You, you bring up a really good point that we were, it was like a tsunami that came over us, literally. And and we just didn't, you know, we didn't have time to think or react. And and then decisions were being made. And, and I truly believe in my heart that people making decisions at that time had the best intentions and were all those decisions the best decisions in hindsight? No, I don't think so. But on the other hand, I really, truly believe that people were good intended and really, really wanted to save lives. And But there was consequences to some of those decisions. And, and one of which of those is isolation. You know, people became extraordinarily isolated, isolated in their homes, isolated in the hospitals, isolated away from the sacraments. We were all um, put into this literal and... and uh, a figurative um, box during COVID that we had to stay inside of, and it, it it profoundly changed us. There's no doubt. It really did. And when you talk about that isolation, we weren't prepared for that. To have to have a particular type of silence, it either brought families together or it tore them apart. 
relationships were either strengthened or the the cracks and the breaks became very apparent. It exposed weaknesses and it strengthened that which is good. So it did both. It was it was like there's no middle ground here. You can't be neutral about anything with COVID, it seems like. I think important for us to go back and revisit it, but not in a way that within maybe a two years starting to come out of it, there was a dissection that kind of polarized the country, where some said, well, this was very important, this was very good, and others lifted up the points where it was really, really bad, maybe in their particular viewpoint on how we responded, ended up causing more division so that the going back and looking at what was the experience so that we can be better prepared for the next time. Because there will be potentially the way we are communicating globally and traveling globally that something like this or something of a nature that we can't even comprehend could come upon us just as quickly. And are we prepared? Not just with material means or the response of governments or society, but also spiritually, are we going to be prepared for that type of potential? And whether or not something equivalent happens on a global scale in our lifetime, time will tell. But what really is, I don't want to say inevitable, but a very high threat to all of us as individuals is coming again back to this sense of isolation. You know, the risk of being isolated uh, in our lifetime, uh, regardless of what happens on a global sense, that's a real threat. And isolation can lead to despair. And Christ does not want despair. He does not want us to feel isolated because he wants relationship with us. He wants communion with us. And whether that isolation comes from a, you know, a war or pandemic, or whether that isolation comes from sin in our own lives, or whether isolation comes because of just circumstances in our life, Christ wants to push through that. He wants to open the door. He wants to free us from that fear of being isolated because he wants us. He desires us. He, he wants our hearts. It was, as I said, part of the really compelling part of the book was in the very beginning. It, it brings out this example of you don't know what lies ahead each day. And so you have this young girl uh, her name is Samantha, who felt she was so prepared after just leaving nursing school to go out and to do what she was trained for and desired to minister to in her vocation as a nurse. And she went and worked in the ICU, and then she ended up essentially working in, as you described it, it almost seemed like a MASH unit in a war zone where the effects of COVID in the very beginnings, I, don't, I think we forget how devastating it truly was, how it was taking lives so quickly that I can't even imagine what it was like. I, I wasn't a medical professional. I heard stories. You were right there on the front lines. You got to see it with your own eyes and experience it in your own heart. And I did. And I think what also prior to any medications or vaccines or anything, there was no defenses against it. And it was overwhelming. And people who were vulnerable, elderly, were particularly affected by it. And those caring for them were in fear, right? I mean, in my career, 
I guess there has been a few times I, w- I had some fear in taking care of patients, uh, maybe being exposed to someone who had hepatitis or HIV or something like that. And I was afraid that if I did surgery, I might poke myself. So there's a little bit of fear, but never overwhelming fear. But but for caregivers, like nurses in particular, they had to overcome their own fear for their own safety to go care for other people's. I mean, that was truly heroic. Gloves and PPE and all that are great, but people still got sick. Caregivers got sick. Caregivers, they died during this. And so, I mean, you talk about just heroic people, those on the front line, especially nurses who are right there in the thick of it, uh, put their own health risks aside and took care of people during this time. It was, it was truly remarkable. Wasn't it something to, to appreciate for the first time, I mean, for me, the courage it took for those who worked in the grocery stores, who worked in the, those places where we had needs, literally for food, and they were right out there trying to help us. And, the, and it, for many of them, they needed to do it because they, they needed to provide for their own families through work. In those early days, that took a lot of courage. Yes, that's a very good point. It wasn't just people in the healthcare industry. It was just people who were out there in the public, literally risking their own lives to uh, provide for their families, but also to, I think some people really felt this sense of what I'm doing is important. And in my own small way, I'm doing something that is helping other people. And it's important that I'm doing what I'm doing, whether it's at the grocery store or whether it's someone you know, driving a truck to bring us things on the road. So many people who did things that were so utterly important. And yes, tremendous courage during those times. Yeah, I think the impact spiritually and emotional, the well-being, it had a profound effect on all that, especially on our mental health for both healthcare professionals and also for patients, those who had to wait. And that it's the importance, I think, that you emphasized on that holistic care to consider in future responses that if things like this occur again, that we're prepared both mentally but also spiritually to help. And that's just every day developing your faith life and then having that be brought into your work environment, how we care for others so we don't take people for granted. I think that's an important thing that we can draw from it, don't you feel? Yes, yes. I think that for us to be prepared for any disaster, personal or otherwise, requires us to reflect upon you know, our own lives, uh, our relationship with the Lord, so that should something happen, we have to the best of our ability prepared our hearts and our minds, our bodies for whatever it is that comes our way so that by being in communion with Christ and being in communion with others, we can persevere and, and maybe even thrive you know, despite the challenges that might come our way. If we appreciated people, especially those who were on the front line for us, for the majority of us, if we appreciated during COVID, we should appreciate them today when, they're, when the fear is not as prevalent. My hope is that we treat them with the same type of respect and dignity and value what they give to us. And I think that's at the core of Catholic social teaching. This was a prime example of how it should be lived out in our daily lives. In the chapter two, it underscores that vulnerability of the elderly. What happened during that 
time, especially for those who were 65 and over, they were the highest percentage of those who suffered during COVID, weren't they? They were. I mean, all life is equally valuable. And, and so there's, regrettably, some people were a little bit dismissive about that. I hate to tell you like, well, they're older and, you know, they're going to die soon anyway. I cringe to even tell you that, but I heard people say that. You know, if you're young, you'll be fine. And so people who are dismissive in some way were just expressing this lack of appreciation for what the older generation has given uh, to us and being kind of dismissive, like, oh, it's just old people. It was a profound loss, profound loss to families. And, you know, I remember um, during COVID, I was put in charge of the state's um, isolation and quarantine facilities in the state. And so we had people housed in dorms throughout various colleges, and and I oversaw that. And what was so profound, and what I confess that I just was not, you know, it wasn't my world, but the world of so many other places where we had multi-generational families living together, That's that hasn't been my world, but it is the real world, real reality for a lot of people. So grandma, fathers, wives, kids, grandkids, all together. And so then the loss of a generation that occurred it's tragic in all senses in every family situation, don't get me wrong. But in particular, I think families were, they still had this traditional integrated multi-generational family, the profound impact that happened when the, the matriarch or the patriarch died during COVID is, is a loss that was just so difficult for so many people. When we talked about learning from history and hopefully being able to reevaluate and put in better strategies, I would hope that in dealing with the elderly that we're able to do that or or just period human beings because you can go back and you can look at how we treated AIDS patients back at that time when AIDS was rising and we weren't sure what was happening and how they were placed in isolation and separated out. And part of it is you understand in your head why that needs to occur because you're dealing with something you don't want to spread. But then when do those strategies begin to eat away at our souls in a way that we, we can't be present to nurture and to help those people in those final moments, which are crucial for our humanity, not for the one who is just dying, but also for the, the ones who have, are the loved ones, the ones that are offering care. Well, I mean, it was, it was just agonizing for so many families to be separated during this time. And, you know, and then what happened from there to Chris is then there was a lack of closure that funerals were delayed. Not only were they isolated during um, when a loved one died in the hospital, then, you know, they couldn't have a funeral or they had a funeral with only 10 people at it. And so it just was adding uh, insult to injury that even after death, what, what it did for us uh, or did to us, that our funeral rites um, are so critically important for us. And for us to really have that chance to focus on the the hope of the resurrection, you know, despite everything that's happened, despite all the uh, terrible things that happened during COVID, it was just made even worse by the fact that we couldn't celebrate that, or we only could celebrate it with a few people. Like I said, it was just adding insult to injury, you know, even after people died because of that, uh, the restrictions that were in place. I would hope that there are conversations taking place, at least in the, the walls of the church, in the, in the structure of the church, to prepare ourselves. Did we react? Did we 
respond in the best way that we could. I mean, part of it, I keep going back to the fact that you made the best decision that you can in the moment because we really didn't have a baseline in this present time to know how to do that. Now, I'm, we're going to talk about the Ars Morande in just a moment, this incredible book that was passed down to us from the 1500s that gives us some clues about what we should have been ready for. Have we learned anything or at least spent a little time in reflection and and for outcomes so that if something sudden happens again that we've learned from this and not respond in a manner that it's difficult for me to find the right verbiage for that. Do you know where I'm trying to go with that? Yeah, I, I do. You know, so um, there's a number of individuals who kind of became the, I guess, for lack of a better word, kind of the face of national policy, you know, um, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Uh, Francis Collins. And Francis Collins was the head of the NIH. And I have a ton of respect for him. He's a very devout Christian. I had the honor of working with him when I was a resident in Michigan. He's a good man. But he recently came out and said, our number one priority was to save lives, which, which is a good thing. But we did so in such a way that everything else became a secondary concern, that the entire emphasis on public health was to save lives. So all the um, uh, restrictions and everything were enacted because of the good intent to save lives. But it was at the expense of many other things. And in hindsight, he admits that, well, that might not have been the right approach, that when we make decisions, we do need to look at the entire person, right? We do need to look at not only the biological reality of who they are, their body, and we want to save their biological reality, but we can't ignore the emotional and spiritual components of, of who we are as human beings. And I think that's what he was saying. We focus so much on the bio- biology of keeping this, these people alive to the expense of their emotional and spiritual needs. So yeah, I, I, I think in hindsight, things could have been done differently. And I was glad to hear him say that. I think he's a humble man. I know some people may feel otherwise because he's part of these decisions, but I think it's important for him and other leaders to go back and reflect, could we have done things better? And and his answer was, yeah, we could have. We could have had different priorities. I want to be very clear for our listeners. I am not criticizing the leadership that we had in individual and dioceses or even how the church responded worldwide that's not the point. My hope is that, okay, now that we have lived through this, what have we learned as a church as well? Because there were, I think, some heroic moments at that time. Because you'll remember, Steve, this happened during Lent. It was the Lentiest Lent ever in 2020, because we weren't even allowed to go into our churches and to receive the sacraments for the most part. And I just remember there were priests who were located in Omaha, Nebraska during cold periods who would set up in chairs in the parking lot of the church. And people would literally, I never thought in my lifetime I would experience the drive-through confession. But yet there were some creative ways because those particular priests felt and knew in their hearts they needed to be there and present for their people. Now, that wasn't a diocesan response, and I'm not again, I'm not criticizing diocese, but my hope is that those in leadership, after reflection, are better prepared for the possibility if this should happen again. And it, it could. 
it re- the, the reality of that in our present world, something like this may occur again. Are we prepared for that? Well, what's interesting, Chris, is that history does repeat itself. And, you know, the isolation or the um, clergy being unavailable to the faithful is is nothing new. And, and as you mentioned, there's this pamphlet that circulated in the um, 1300s called the Ars Moriende, the Art of Dying Well. So during the Black Plague, you know, a third of the population died, you know, including the clergy. But uh, the Black Plague was a century before. And so so the, the idea for this book, this pamphlet, was that acknowledging the reality that people did not have access to the sacraments and they did not have access to clergy. And how is it then that they could prepare themselves, you know, to die? And that's kind of like what was going on here during COVID. The parallels are striking. Uh, we did not have access to the sacraments. Uh, we did not have access to our churches. And a lot of our clergy were elderly, and a lot of our clergy got sick, and a lot of them died. So the parallels are striking. And so this this booklet, simple booklet, was really important at that time, and, and, and I think it's something for us to think about it for ourselves. Um, uh, the chapter in the book talks about the, this pamphlet, and, and I encourage people, you can get inexpensive copies online for next to nothing and, and, and to read it, uh, because the, the truths that in there are very simple, but they're very profound. Uh, talks about you know temptations that can occur as death approaches, the temptation to despair, for example, the temptation to lose faith, all these things that uh, during periods of stress, which are further compounded by spiritual isolation, you know, the devil likes to work in those areas in particular. And for us to ignore the spiritual realities of good and evil, we do so at our own peril. And so um, what this booklet was trying to do is try to help people in advance you know, to be prepared for the, number one, the inevitability of death, but also the possibility when that happens, you might be alone. You might be away from the clergy, from sacraments, or even your family. And so that was the hope for this, is the hope for us to prepare for that possibility of dying alone, and but yet still dying well. That's what that title means, the art of dying well, the Ars Moriende. We'll return to the final journey with Dr. Stephen Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcast, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran. I was so glad that you brought that up, the Ars Morande, because that as you explain those temptations that are faced by individuals during the pandemics are extraordinary. And it all re- it's all related to faith, as you said, despair, but also greed and spiritual pride. Because as you remember, in the very beginning, and I remember this happened after 9-11 in 2001, many of our listeners, some of them weren't even born at that time. But when that initially happened, all of a sudden, I remember seeing the members of Congress coming out, Republicans and Democrats united on the steps singing God Bless America. And there was joint prayer. Well, I remember there was a Thursday evening where everybody went outside in parking lots at shopping centers or if you were working, and there was a shared prayer. And faith was very strong, and I think that was the way it was for COVID. You immediately go to the heart, and you you want to hold on to God, and you want to believe. But as time progressed, and it didn't seem as though this was going to end quickly, the way we're used to in this present age where things are going to get fixed, and we're going to be back on track before the end of the summer. And things weren't happening that way, that the temptations became very, very loud. And the pamphlet that you speak about, it's what was true in the 1500s was true in the 2000s because people were stockpiling, there was profiteering, and it exacerbated the global inequalities. The haves and the have-nots, the haves made sure they had more so in case they ran out, and the ones who had not, they couldn't get yeah, I think you raise a good point. I think that, like many people, I had this thought, well, you know, this will be a problem for you know a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then life gets back to normal. And so, because I remember the first wave, we got through the first wave, right? Okay, all's good mm-hmm. in the world. Everything's going to be fine. Well, it wasn't. And then the other wave, and then another wave. And so the grind of the pandemic started to really have an impact. You know, the initial reaction is the, put your big boy pants on, we're going to get through this. Well, you can only do that for so long. You can only be self-sufficient for so long. And uh, and that's the case in so many things in our lives where we think that we can, you know, we can handle this challenge on our own and and by golly, we're going to get through this. Well, in the pandemic, it became clear after a while that that's just not the case, that this is going to go on. And that's when I think these temptations became especially apparent. We started to see, you know, rising rates of depression, anxiety, 
despair, you know, temptations to greed, profiteering, uh, all these types of things became more and more apparent the longer the plague went on and the longer the pandemic went on. There's so many parallels between these two things. So yeah, hopefully we, we learn from that collectively as a society, but also individually. Because again, even if there's not some global catastrophe, we could be faced with these same issues on a personal level. And so it's good for us to kind of look back and reflect on those things. And I think that's what you do so well in this book, because you help emphasize the importance of cultivating those virtues in our hearts of faith, hope, charity, and humility in order to overcome those temptations and that are often associated with that fear of death. I don't think we connect it to the fear of death very often. There's a reality, if you, if you understand it, then you can take action. You have to be aware that this is going on in your heart. And it helps you not only respond in your own end-of-life journey, but it also helps you respond to your brothers and sisters who are experiencing this. I mean, you know, what you mentioned is so good, you know, this... As, as, as you've done so well in, in other uh, productions about uh, discernment, you know, uh, with Father Gallagher, the, the idea that you have to be aware so that you can then take action, right? Those, those are fundamental parts of discernment. And so sometimes we think about discernment and kind of big life, you know, changes and all those types of things. But discernment is an ongoing process and all the things that happen in our life. And so in a sense, we are called to prepare and discern for our death, right? And, and to be aware of the movements in our heart regarding death, our fears, or whatever it is, those movements of the Spirit to identify them and to say, are they, are they taking us away from God? Are they taking us towards God? You know, identify those movements and then to be aware of them and then to take action on it. So I'm so glad you brought that up because that process of discernment is not just limited to big life decisions. Well, I guess that's a big life, de- it's not a decision, but it's a big life event, we're, we, we're called to be continuously discerning all aspects of our life. And preparation for death is one of those things that we're called to discern, to be aware, to know what's in our hearts, the movements of our hearts, and to, to identify them. I think, as you have pointed out to us, that it's important to realize that death is not the end. I think in our, our mind is, okay, I'm, there's a fear of it because this is the death. It's actually the next passage into what we're already experiencing, eternal life, this phase, if we have this in our head, so that our actions, that temptation that if I don't, this is going to be it. Well, it is in that transition to the next phase. And if if we are fearful, that's what we have to bring to the Lord to help us. Again, there's a healthy fear that says, you know, you don't want to die. But then also there's the other type of that fear of the Lord, that awe, that okay, I trust you, and I know you want my greater good, and it, it's anchored in that hope. Well, I think what's at the root of what you just brought up in our Western postmodern sensibilities that we've reduced our humanness to our, its biological functions. You know, there's this, this dualism that separates the sacred from the biological, that, you know, our death is not just the cessation of our biological reality— it's the separation of our heart and souls, and our, I'm sorry, our bodies from our souls. And if we forget that there's a spiritual reality of who we are as humans, it really brings in a lot of problems. And in, in, and in this discussion, if we forget the fact that death is not the end, that death, our souls go on, 
you have every reason to be fearful because death is the end then, right? When my biological functions mm -hmm. end, I'm done. There's nothing else. So if we ignore the reality that we are body and soul and forget the fact that our souls are going to go on, then yes, the, the despair is going to creep in. Now, when we remember that our souls are eternal and go on, that doesn't make death you know, happy necessarily. It's still a sad event, but it, it just creates a sense of hope. Like, okay, there's more. There's more. Uh, there's the, the hope for the resurrection. There's the desire to be in union with God. And, and death is it's the way that happens. It's the necessary step for union with God, which then becomes perfected at the second coming. So if we forget that we're a body and soul, then yes, despair is the natural consequence of that. I think that's why it's so important that every day we're cultivating those virtues, that we're living a life in that hope, in the faith, kindness to others, the practice of caring for one another, that solidarity with other individuals. If we're doing it now in this life, when these moments, the, that big tsunamis are coming, you're prepared for it because you're anchored in hope. Dying well begins today. It doesn't wait to that last moment of death, but you've been living that life. You've been moving towards this every step of your journey. Well, St. Robert Bellarmine said it very succinctly. He said, you know, it's pretty simple. If you want to die well, you need to live well. And you're exactly right, Chris, that, that life begins, that process of living well begins with our baptism, you know, where our souls are infused with the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, that we can call upon throughout our lives, and that uh, becomes nurtured and fed by the other sacraments. And so that grace that's within us allows us better to live a virtuous life, uh, to live by those theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and to cultivate the other virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about, you know, kindness, gentleness, and so on and so forth, so that we are living well, and by that we will die well. Now, as we've talked about before, dying well doesn't mean an easy death, doesn't mean a painless death or something like that necessary, but it's a, it's a life that's lived in anticipation of heaven, a life that's lived in anticipation of the resurrection. That's, that's the mark of, I guess, of a good life leading to a good death. Mm. You know, you, uh, in the chapter, I think what was more eye-opening to me, I, we alluded to it in the beginning of our conversation, but that perception, at least on my part, of healthcare professionals that you know, you move from being appreciated, and you're so grateful they're there, to becoming targets of anger and frustration. How can Catholic healthcare ethics ultimately guide those practitioners, especially those who are practicing Catholics and Christians, through these moral distresses? And they can support not only the community, but they can help themselves in upholding that commitment to that compassionate care you discuss in the chapter. You know, I think if, if there's lessons to be learned, Chris, that's that's one of them. I think you raise a good point. I think that, you know, as a consequence of that stress, that caring for patients and being the focus of anger, there's a lot of people who left. I mean, the, the nursing crisis in particular, as COVID went on, became very severe. And there's a lot of people who left nursing or left nursing, at least in the hospital setting, who just who just won't go back. And young woman I talk about here, Samantha, she left critical care nursing. You know, she's working in obstetrics ward, which is wonderful. It's great. And she's a beautiful woman who's doing great work there too. But there wasn't support. Everybody's just kind of like fighting for themselves and barely getting through the day and going home and falling into bed and afraid they're going to bring sickness home to their family. And 
pertaining to be able to come up with a some sort of um, specific way of doing this. But the lack of support we had for so many people just further fed that isolation. And there's consequences. There's a shortage of healthcare providers. The hospitals are still very, very full right now because there's not enough healthcare workers and there's sick people. And we're still feeling the impact of COVID when it comes to just people who are able and willing to to care for other people. And gosh, I wish we, if, if we had a do-over, I wish we would have done that better. I wish we would have done that better to care for the people caring for people. You know, I spoke of March of 2020 being the Lentiest Lent ever. And I, I think maybe for future Lents, maybe that might be a spiritual practice is to go back and look at ourselves. How did we react? How did we treat others? Where was the disposition of our hearts? And what can the Lord in the light of our prayer enlighten for us and how we might be able to grow and be able to be more Christ-like out in the world? Again, not only to appreciate the healthcare worker, but do we continue to be grateful for those who supply for our needs, whether it be uh, wherever it might be, those who uh, in the grocery stores or those who take care of our garbage or those that we took for granted, the waitress, the waiter at the restaurant, the fact that the restaurants opened again. Are we still grateful? That's such a good point, Chris. I think that it's so easy, you know, to kind of forget those lessons of COVID and yet how they, how they're so important to, we would hope our hearts would have changed in some ways in some permanent way, like that sense of gratefulness that we initially had that, well, now it's kind of life goes back to, to normal and, and we forget about those who who do things in service for us. All those you know jobs that you mentioned are, are in service for us. And I think that would be a good practice for me. I would, and I think for other people too, is to, to take Lent and to you know, be very mindful about and grateful for those who serve us in some way. There's so many people who do, it's the people who serve us in the church and our jobs, you know, on the community, to be grateful for those who give for us. Because what, what is the antidote to selfishness? It's gratitude. The vices have an opposite virtue, so to focus on gratitude and thankfulness to overcome that inclination to maybe take people for granted for their, their willingness to, to care for me in a real way. So I think that's a great idea. And I would also say for, for many of us, and I have to continually go back and revisit this in my own heart, as Catholics, the value that we have for our churches, for and the opportunity to receive the sacraments, that we're not just attending a social gathering of friends and hearing a homily, but that we're actually having an encounter with grace. I think that's one of the things that was so difficult, the starving for that, and that anointing of the sick, the anointing of the sick that I know a young priest, I, I watched him cry because he was denied access to a nursing home. He tried to get to his people in his parish, and he was sobbing because he could not bring the anointing of the sick to those who were asking for it. And, and yet, do we take those our sacraments, those encounters of divine grace, do we take those for granted? We really have to take a look, not only as individuals, but as families. What are we passing on to our children? I'm, I'm mindful when you're telling this story that I think people who are in a ministry in whatever way are priests, religious, ministers at a church. If, if you think about it, the, the reaction to 
a fire for most people is to run out of the fire, but the other people show up, the first responders, they run into the fire. They run into the fire. And that's what our clergy, our priests wanted to do. They want to be like that fireman running into the fire to save, to to bring hope, to bring sacraments. And, you know, the frustration that, you know, that's what they were there for, to run into the fire, and they couldn't. And how hard, how difficult it was to be unable to do what your heart wanted so much to do is to run into that fire of suffering while everybody else is running out, you know? I think that's the kind of, a part of that element of compassionate care that I hope that the church has, has a time of reflection can find ways of being that. I mean, we celebrate saints during our whole conversation, Saint Damien of Molokai, coming back into my mind, I'm thinking of all of the missionaries of charity throughout the world and all the other religious orders that are serving right now in situation hotspots that are experiencing severe illnesses. We, in the United States, where we're recording this, I think we feel that we're safer now. And so life, for most of us, we feel it's gone back to normal. But there are communities with large populations that are suffering not only the effects of a pandemic, but we're not even aware of because they're so poor they don't make it to the news. They're not sending news crews out to these places, but also in war-torn areas. This still is prevalent, but we're just not aware of it, I think, because it's not on our screens. Right, right. I, I think you're right, Chris. I agree. I agree. Every chapter in the book is so important, I think, but this one, it just it jumps out because I think this is a communal type of sharing that I hope that uh, it's a discussion that if there is still some heat around it, because it's maybe for some still fresh, far as whether they agreed or disagreed after reflection about how we might have responded, that we can get past that and try to find what the fruits of this experience. I mean, ultimately, the Father allowed it. The Father in heaven allowed it. So good. He wants our greater good. So what is the lesson that we can take as Christians? Where did we do well and where did we fail? Well, we know that God works for the good in all things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think you're exactly right that he allowed this and that it is a chance for us now to go back and reflect on a personal level and on a societal level. What is it that we can do better without necessarily beating ourselves up or beating other leaders up and say, okay, what did we learn from this? How can we respond better now as individuals, like you were saying earlier, to be grateful, just to, to remember that gratefulness that we had during the pandemic and just kind of stir up that sense of gratefulness, just in normal day-to-day life, but then also the kind of the bigger picture of what if, what if something like this happens again? How can we prepare ourselves, our own hearts, and how as we, as a society, prepare for the entire person, not just their biological reality, but how can we prepare for their emotional and spiritual needs too? I just would say that I know for me there are opportunities that during the experience, I um, I put the I put the virtues away. There were several of them that I just parked over on the side and I responded to the temptation. And my hope is that okay, I realized that I I failed uh, on my own uh, through my fault through my fault. Grievous <laughs> 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 fault, right? Right. right. Uh, my hope is that the ones that I set aside, if I can bring them and desire them and want to practice them today, that I won't be so quick 
to set them aside in the future. And I, I hope that others feel that way. And I think your book really helped me to want to cultivate that in my life. So I'm so grateful for that. Well, thank you, Chris. That's beautiful. I think to, to stir up those virtues and to recall the ones that maybe we kind of parked on the shelf for a little bit, that's a really, really good reflection. Uh, any final thoughts, Steve? Well, uh, I guess what I would say is that keep coming back to this idea that we can't forget who we are as body and soul, and that if we forget that, it leads to all sorts of bad things, you know, and decisions where we start treating the biological realities and ignore the spiritual realities, and we have to remember that. And so in this issue of dying alone, moving forward, remembering that we we have... uh, we have souls, and that uh, for us to forget that, to re- we, we, we need to remember that despite the sadness of death, there is more, and our souls live on, and, and that our lives are meant to prepare for that reality that through death, that's how we meet Jesus, and uh, to prepare ourselves for that event. And so, yeah, just to be mindful that we have a soul, and to care for our souls. Again, we're so grateful for you, Dr. Doran. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. You've been listening to The Final Journey, insights from a Catholic deacon and neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran.